T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Brian Mazeroski back here with you as we uh, continue our coverage of the Diocese of Buffalo and the changes that have been made over the past uh, now 24 plus hours. Joining me live in studio, attorney Steve Boyd and Channel 7 investigative reporter Charlie Specht. Uh, while we are talking, by the way, going on right now, uh, you can see at News Radio 930 uh, live on our Twitter feed, Nancy Pelosi making a statement this morning, uh, expected and it appears right now she hasn't quite finished yet, but delivering a statement supporting impeachment. So uh, no real big surprises there. But again, if uh, you'd want to see that statement for yourself at News Radio 930 on Twitter and uh, a little bit later on demand at WBEN.com. All right, Charlie Specht, Steve Boyd joining me live in studio. And uh, it was not that long ago, just about an hour ago <laughs> now we were uh, talking before. And I, uh, you know, started to ask you guys a question that I was very curious about, but decided, you know, maybe I better give you a little bit more time to elaborate. And I find it interesting. Now you, you have different roles, Charlie reporting on what's going on and Steve uh, representing so many victims. But at one point, Steve, you were a reporter kind of at the beginning stages of this before, you know, maybe the the scope of the problem within the church was known, uh, beginning to uncover that. And obviously, Charlie, uh, now at the head of this uh, with the removal of a bishop, I'm wondering what the difference is, what the difference maybe, Steve, you see and Charlie, you might notice then and now, attitudes of dealing with the church, being able to get some of this information, and attitudes of Western New York, of how people are receptive to hearing these things about an institution that so many people here in Western New York love and grew up with. Well, uh, let me just say that when things started, and our first report was in December of 1993, there had been a lawsuit against Father Bernard Mock for abusing a little boy back then. The family brought a lawsuit. And in the arrogance of Father Mock, his response to that was to hold a 5 p.m. mass at his parish in Lockport to pray for these poor liars. And all of the TV stations were invited. And there were these priests. Father John Aurelio uh, was up on the stage with him, another vicious abuser, um, up on the, the altar, I should say. And, um, and they called this family liars. I was off that day. The next day when I came in, I was called up to the general manager's office, which I'd never had happened before, so I thought I might be in trouble. And I was told, we have a very sensitive story. We want you to work on it. Three men have come forward to defend that little boy. And so I, I've been in touch with two of those three men. One I represent. One is represented by Mitch Garabedian and one who has committed suicide. Those three men 
met with me and they were speaking the unspeakable. I met with them separately and they all told the same story. They were all violently raped by Bernard Mock and John Aurelio at a home that they owned not far from the seminary in East Aurora, a home that they called, uh, I think, Creekside, um, a beautiful estate that they had. And so the story aired. They gave us almost the entire newscast uh, about three or four days before Christmas. And we thought we broke a story of this one bad thing. And then, similar to the movie Spotlight, where at the end of the movie the phones start to ring, our phones started to ring. And the next thing you know, we had Mock and Aurelio and Father Bill White, and the list went on and on and on. But then eventually there was pressure, and um, we don't know where it came from, but we were told after about a year and a half, that's enough, you've told the story, let's move on. We moved on. The Buffalo News moved on. But in that age, no one knew about this. No one spoke. I mean, we knew that there was abuse in other parts of the country, but nobody knew that this was a, a systemic problem. And I think most of the community was sick of our reporting because it was so offensive to think that a priest could betray a child in such a way. Had no idea, though, that this, this went much higher than the individual priests. It's something that, uh, you know, we get the comments in here from people who, uh, you know, Steve, uh, just like you mentioned, maybe don't want to hear it. Uh, maybe they're sick of it. They say you're beating a dead horse. You know, we understand. And uh, Charlie, I'm sure you've heard the same thing, but there is a reason to keep moving forward and to keep uncovering information. Yeah, so I remember uh, our really first big story that we did on a pedophile priest by the name of Father Jim Spielman, um, we had some pretty damaging documents on Bishop Head, um, and I needed someone to put them in context. So I, I didn't even know Steve at the time, and somebody from Channel 7 said, well, why don't you call Steve Boyd? You know, he used to work here, and he's a lawyer, and so we had Steve in and looked at him, and, you know, off camera, we started to talk about his experience and how essentially after enough time— he, you know, the station essentially shut him down and said, "This is this is enough. You know, you've you, you, you've done enough uh, damage here to the church. We don't want to, you know, keep going on this." And and I don't know if there was pressure or or whatnot, but I took a video clip of that because we still had it on camera, and I sent it to my general manager, and I said, uh, "Who's no longer here?" I sent it to my general manager and said, "This is what happens when you stop a story." that this keeps happening for decades. So let's not make that mis same mistake this time. And I think it really had an effect on him. I mean, I, I was concerned because the Catholic Church is a, is a powerful institution. And I said to, you know, my general manager the day before our stories ran, are, are you ready for hell to rain down on, on you here? Because you're going to get a call from Terry Connors. You're going to get a call from a lot of influential people here uh, to lay off. And to Channel 7's credit, they never once told me to stop. It was always keep going. And I think part of the reason for that is it wasn't a, a crusade or anything, and it wasn't a journalist going after the church. It was telling the stories of these survivors. And I think, for me, what what the lawyers have done here, you know, besides, you know, drawing attention here to bankruptcy and the financial issues, is really keep the the victims and the survivors, their stories, on the front burner. And it was always asking questions on behalf of them. And I also think it's probably a better time to come out as a sexual abuse survivor in 2019 than it was in 1993. 
you know, you don't have the whole world stacked against you. There's still a lot of people stacked against you, and it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. But I think, you know, with the Me Too movement and, you know, social media and sort of the general age of more transparency that we live in today, that it is a better time to come out. All those things you mentioned and also the credibility of a lot of these stories that we've heard uh, over time, which for uh, the two of you now are important for very different reasons, right? Uh, I mean, obviously, Charlie is a reporter and Steve in determining who you are going to represent, uh, you are checking with the credibility. It's not just, you know, let's throw all of these at the wall and see, you know, how many land. It's uh, on an individual basis. You're hearing the stories. You have to. Um, But one of the moments that, um, you know, I'm partnered with Jeff Anderson, who's been working in this arena for 37 years. And one of the things that Jeff had said to me is very early on, he said, if you believe the person in front of you, it's important that you let them know that. And so when I meet with a client for the first time, and I can just tell. I mean, very often they're saying, I know I don't have a case, but I just thought maybe I could help somebody else. I think you should know this. And I'm listening to them, and I think you have a case. But when I say the words, you want to know something? I believe you. Invariably, that person reaches for the Kleenex box. It's an emotional moment. It may be the first time in their lives that they've heard someone believe them. And they spent their childhood, when this happened, they grew up knowing after it happened, no one's ever going to believe me. And so I do believe every single one of my clients, every one of my clients, I fully believe that what they say happened to them happened. And so we check. And do the dates match where the priest was assigned at the time? Do the dates match where they ended up leaving Catholic school and going to public school? They, they tell such stories about themselves that I haven't been able to share with anyone and never will about their frailties and their errors, the mistakes they made as, as kids and as adults, the drug abuse, the divorces, the other afflictions that they go through in life. And very often you're talking to somebody who before this happened was a straight-A student altar boy mm-hmm. who doesn't appear to have been on that kind of path. So it it is... Um, it's important that that survivors know that there are people in this community that do believe them. And we have the burden of proof. And I'll tell you one thing. I never fight the burden of proof. We fully accept that we have the burden of proof. We're not going to go into court and ask for sympathy. We're not going to go into court and say, see, this is their brand. They're all doing this. No, we're going to go in there. We're going to prove every single case. For Charlie, it- that's important for maybe a different reason because for you you know you have i don't need to tell you you have a lot of people out there who are looking for maybe that slip up maybe that case or that person you talk to that doesn't match up and actually wait a second this didn't happen and then it doesn't matter if it's one facet the entire body of work kind of is tainted by that and that's another reason why you have to <laughs> double back check and make sure that these are credible people in each and every instance. Yeah, so, you know, on you're right, we do have critics who just won't ever believe this sort of thing. There was somebody on, on Twitter the other day who said to me, there was a survivor that came out and, and told her story, uh, Sarah, who we both know, and told her story. And um, the guy on Twitter said, um, 
you know, well, you, the journalists, they're just acting like friends to you. They're not asking the, you know, the tough questions. And that's not true. We actually, we do a lot of verification aside from the, the dates and the names. Like you listen to someone's story pretty sympathetically the first time they tell it, but you listen for key details, you know, um, was it around, you know, if they say it was around, it was before Christmas time. Well, you check, you know, that month and that that year in the Catholic directory. If they say, well, you know, I reported it to another pastor and the priest was moved all of a sudden. Well, then we could verify by looking through a directory that this priest was indeed suddenly moved. There was also code words. A lot of the priests who ended up being pedophiles, not all of them, but a lot of them, uh, in the Catholic directories, there will be, uh, it'll say, care of 795 Main Street, which is the diocesan headquarters, instead of uh, their own addresses. So that's a red flag. So you, you listen and you try to check with those things. Oh, I told my cousin about this, you know, after it happened. Well, okay, is the cousin still alive? Does the cousin remember you telling them? You know, you, you try to do as much as you can to corroborate it. And then I think the other thing is that it's just a gut call. Most people actually are not sort of calling us and saying, hey, I want to tell my story and be on TV. It, actually, most of them want to tell their story to somebody. And eventually, after many, many days of sort of talking with them and assuring them it's going to be okay, then you get to the point, do you think you would go on camera and tell it? Like uh, Matt Golden, who ended up being a survivor who went on Nightline, uh, when he first reached out to me, he said he had no interest in publicity. He just said, you know, I just want you to know, keep doing what you're doing. It's worse than you think. There's more people out there. Eventually, you know, after going back and forth for a long time, we found out the priest that allegedly abused him, Father Dennis Ryder, who denies it, was actually still a priest. And I said to him, you know, and he said to me, you know, I can't sleep with myself at night, not knowing, you know, knowing that he could be out there doing this again. And it took a lot of negotiation to get him to tell his story. So if somebody does come to you and they instantly say, I had a case like this once, it wasn't the Catholic Church, but somebody came to our newsroom unannounced and said, I really want to tell you about the time I was raped. And I really want to tell, you know, most people don't want to mm-hmm. tell that story to a bunch of strangers, you know, that they don't know. And, and there can be certain red flags like that. But most people are sort of coming to this hesitatingly, And you have to, there's a ton of stories that tell you that we end up not doing just because the person comes forward to a point. And then, and then when it comes time to decide if they're going to do an interview on camera, it's, you know, I just don't think I can do it. And we have to respect that. Let me tell you something, Brian, you have a faithful listener who was abused by a priest. And I was here sometime around February of last year and she contacted me. I still have not met with her. She contacts me every time I'm here in your studio. She contacted me this morning. And we still haven't met. She still can't bring herself to have that first meeting. And that's more typical. So I know that when when skeptics out there look at a guy, you know, an old gray-haired guy like me, if they say they were abused, and they want to cross-examine them, well, you know something? Most seven and eight and nine-year-olds, they're not very good at collecting evidence. They're not very good at preserving crime scenes. And they shouldn't be expected to be. And so what I do when I meet with a client and they leave my office, 
Whatever age they tell me the abuse started, I go on my computer and I look at my kids' pictures from that age. So I'm not looking at some gray-haired guy. I'm looking at that kid. And I'm thinking how infuriated I would be if this happened to my child at that age. As a community, people like Charlie and Jay Tokaz and other journalists, and the Bishop Scharfenberger himself thanked the journalist, they have stood up well ahead of the church to protect the children, while Bishop Malone has been standing up to protect the assets. And that's not very priestly. Everything uh, both of you just said are factors into this, but you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to uh, the spotlight case. And we mm-hmm. have one of those reporters on with us yesterday morning as this uh, whole thing was going down. And that was almost 20 years ago now. And, you know, it's and that was no small news when it wasn't, you know, localized to Boston. That was national headlines all over the place. What are some of the reasons why it's taken? You know, why are we talking about this in 2019, soon to be 2020 here in Buffalo when, you know, people were pretty much their their eyes were beginning to open to this 20 years ago? There are some things in life that are so bad that your mind can't even process it. And in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the word of the priest was the word of God. If you got in trouble with your teacher, you were in trouble. If you got in trouble with the priest, you were dead. That was big trouble. Because parents raised us to trust the word of the priest as an emissary of God. There is no higher authority. And so it was just so hard to talk about. And so many people didn't go to their parents. And those who did, many of them said, don't ever, don't ever talk about that again. You know, just that concept, I think, is foreign to a lot of people. Uh, certainly to me, to have that type of authority figure. I mean, you go to a, a school. My wife's a teacher, and she can tell you that I'm not viewed that way. You know, in a, in a classroom, there aren't many people who are viewed as that type of authority figure anymore. Yeah, um, my nana was a parish secretary for 20 years to Father Basil Ormsby at St. Teresa's Church in South Buffalo, who was, we now know, a notorious pedophile. Um, he's also accused of raping a, a religious sister. And, of course, my family didn't know this at the time and was sort of devastated. But I remember last year we were sitting there and I was contacted by a, a, a victim of Father Ormsby. And he said that, yeah, I was abused by Ormsby. Um, he told me that he would destroy my family's reputation in the community if I ever, if I ever said something. And my my cousin, who's who's uh, just out of college, said, I, "I don't even understand what you're saying. What do you mean? He's a priest. How could he destroy?" And you know, my parents and my uncle, they said, "You don't understand what it was like back then." There used to be a joke uh, whether the most powerful or important person in South Buffalo was either the president of the United States or the pastor of St. Teresa's. They had they had all of the social power. You have to think that church wasn't something that people just went to as one part of their lives. It was the center for many families, especially many Catholic families of the community. So the priest had immense power, and it, it, that power has diminished. Probably that's a good thing, but society has changed, and people are you know, finally getting the, the 
courage to speak yeah, out. Making it uh, maybe a little tougher for some people to wrap their heads around what happened. We have to take a uh, quick break. We'll have the news coming up in just a couple of minutes. Steve Boyd and Charlie Spector, live in-studio guests, will welcome your comments at 30 9.30 and uh, perhaps take a couple of phone calls throughout the next couple of hours as well at uh, 803-0930. It's 9.27 on W. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Good morning. It's 9.37 on WBEM. Brian Mazurowski here, uh, joined by Steve Boyd and Charlie Speck, live in studio. And uh, want to uh, kind of, we were talking a, a lot about how we got to this point. Um, want to talk about the point um, that we're at right now, which is an apostolic administrator, basically an interim bishop uh, in charge after uh, Bishop Malone resigns his post. Uh, wanted to play this clip for you because this is, I'm, there was a lot in uh, the hour plus that he spoke yesterday, but this is the one thing that really stood out to me yesterday. Immediately, I would first of all say, tell the police right away. And then they will follow the normal procedures that we do. Uh, you know, what we've done in, in uh, Albany and what I would, would do here as well, too, is that if an allegation comes in, shows on its face it's some credibility, and by that I mean it doesn't have to go through legal counsel. Somebody says I was abused. If it's contemporaneous, obviously you have to address it immediately. And the appropriate thing that's usually done in a case when an allegation like that comes in is that you uh, inform the priest and then you uh, put him on administrative leave. So you put him out of active ministry until it can be investigated, and you know the, it can be substantiated and then you take appropriate steps after that so you follow that process but again i i would say to anybody if you uh, have any uh, allegation to report you know go directly to the legal authorities we also do have uh toll-free numbers that are published on the the website both for ethics issues as well as abuse issues contemporaneous or otherwise so I always say, if you see something, say something. It's Edward Scharfenberger. He's the apostolic administrator who took over uh, as of yesterday. Uh, asked what he would do if an abuse victim came forward to him. Contact the authorities. Call the police. It's something that would seem like the obvious answer to just about everybody. It's something, Charlie, we have not really heard from the diocese. It's uh, been a lot of uh, something you alluded to earlier this morning. Um, I've heard uh, Malone many times say, well, we're setting up this committee or we uh, we have this, you know, in the works and, you know, this is how we are going to deal with it. That was a pretty straightforward answer and probably what a lot of people wanted to hear yesterday. 
Absolutely. The you know that's the one thing that I think regular Catholics just stop me on the street and ask me, why don't they just call the police on this? Um, we know that in some cases they did call the police and they were sort of shunned by different police departments. But um, I remember there was one time at the sort of infamous diocese press conference uh, six or eight months ago where I think it was somebody from WBEN, a reporter, asked Bishop Malone, you've mentioned all of these cases and these new cases, these priests, the 38 uh, names added to the list. Um, did any, why didn't the diocese ever call the police in these matters? And I remember Bishop Malone sort of had this dumbfounded look on his face and turned around, looked at the attorneys and said, um, well, uh, I think we did. And it wasn't very convincing. So I think in this case, that is uh, Bishop Scharfenberger's uh, number one sort of policy here is call the police first. Then you want to call us fine. The diocese has its own internal investigators, which essentially are retired cops. Uh, and they may do a fine job, but they obviously have, you know, some skin in the game here. They're working for the bishop here. So um, I think most people now have little faith in that an institution like this is going to investigate itself. Yeah. Steve, I'm sure that's maybe what you would want to hear from uh, somebody in Scharfenberger's position. Yeah, absolutely. And he said it very early on in the news conference. But, you know, I went to see Matt Carroll, who was one of the spotlight reporters in Boston, who you had on your show yesterday. And Matt brought out the point that police were called. And if you look at the movie Spotlight, the first scene occurs in a police station. He says that back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, the police were of the opinion that we'll let the bishop handle it. And so was the press. So if it came to a, a newspaper in the 30s or 40s, because this went on back then, let the bishop handle it. And I think the the belief there was that the bishop would handle it in a just manner. So really, all of society was just hoping that someone in the church would take care of this. Because it, it, while we never knew this was as widespread as it is and has been, it was always known that this occurred at some level. People, I think, thought it was very minimal. But they always thought that if a priest stepped out of line, he'd have to answer to the bishop and they take care of it. But call the police that message yesterday, very early on in the news conference, was, I think, pretty significant. And that kind of brings me back to this generational divide that uh, we were mentioning earlier, where back then, that was the perception. Now, I think nobody would ever assume that an organization, whether it be the Catholic Church or anybody else, would just police itself that you wouldn't need to get authorities involved for something illegal because, well, they'll take, they're accountable. They can take care of that themselves, and we don't really need to worry about it that much. I mean, that would not happen today, yet um, you have people my age, uh, certainly, who can't really place themselves back in a time when that wasn't the case. The Church, I think, historically has seen these as, quote-unquote, sins, when in fact these are crimes. So there's there's a difference there, and um, you know the whole idea that uh, this can be handled internally. I think in a lot of cases people don't realize that a crime has been committed against them. Uh, you know you don't have to be uh, raped to have suffered sexual assault, sexual harassment, you know stalking, that sort of thing. Um, and I think now people are more 
uh, attuned to that and, and they are, you know, willing, more willing to kind of step out of their comfort zone and say, yeah, I'm going to contact someone. But in, in those days, um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the police, uh, you know, the, we talked to, to people who said they did go to police departments and they were sort of like, well, do you really want to do this? We don't have any evidence. Not to say the police necessarily were trying to cover it up, but putting um, someone through the normal, you know, sort of ringer of the criminal justice system, you know, a lot of times inherently discouraged them from coming forward. And if you look at, um, let's say, a prosecutor were to prosecute a priest in 1970, he might not get reelected. Prosecutor today prosecuting a priest who's accused and they go take the case to trial, it's a different, it's a different electorate, right? The entire society has a different view of how these cases should be handled. Today, I think most people believe that these cases should be handled through the criminal justice system and with transparency, but that was not the case 20, 30 years ago. There are people who, uh, you know, right away yesterday morning and certainly today are saying, well, all right, Malone is gone, so it's done. It's over. You know, everybody got what they wanted. Um, He's gone, so let's give it a rest. You know, going back to the police thing, I think language is so important here because uh, in the Pennsylvania grand jury report, the prosecutors said that the church described these things as um, sort of misbehavior, horseplay, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I've even been critical. I think the pages of the Buffalo News have done a horrible job of, of saying what has actually happened here. They've they've characterized some of the attempted sexual assaults of Father Robert Yetter as misbehavior. This is not misbehavior. This is something that if you or I uh, were found to have done in our workplace, in our homes, we could be convicted of a crime. So I think you have to call it for what it is. I always try to uh, be as specific as possible without sort of grossing people out here. I'm, I, and I want the, the victims to be comfortable um, with, you know, how I'm describing it. I always ask them, well, do you feel that you were sexually assaulted? You know, I'm only going to ask you to tell me this once, but you kind of have to tell me exactly what happened so I know how to describe it uh, in that way. I, I think I've talked with you about this, and uh, I, Steve, uh, you too, but that the word rape is it's not a pleasant word to say to use to describe something it is what happened in a lot of these cases yet the blanket term that gets thrown over it is abuse and you know okay well um that is true it's all a form of abuse it that doesn't have the power that doesn't send the message the same way that using the other word does yeah, and you add the word child into the sentence that has the word rape, and it becomes even more offensive to hear. And so um, the language there is critical because that's what many of these instances are. Uh, the Father Mock and Aurelio instances were violent rapes of boys who thought they were just going to get drunk and smoke pot. Um, when you think about it in those terms, and you think about even if you try to imagine what that could have been like for that survivor in the moment, you can't imagine it. You can't bring yourself to that point unless you've been through it. Um, I, I may mention before that a lot of people will look at this moment in time and say, "It's this is done. This is the conclusion of the story. Malone is gone, so we can kind of move on. Um, what is left? I'll ask uh, you, Charlie, that I'm sure there's a lot more that you are hoping to uncover. So I have a source who who has said to me for years, uh, Richard Malone is the worst advised 
man in Buffalo and that the people around him are telling him how to act. And I think they are, in a sense, ultimately responsible for some of his decisions. He has to take some responsibility for his own. Um, but if you look at the people around him, if you we asked yesterday about Auxiliary Bishop uh, Edward Grosh um, and his, his role in this. He is still there. Um, we have heard that some of the criminal investigations may, in fact, focus on him. We, one of the few constants over the years have been lawyers and PR people who have essentially been saying things publicly that were simply not true. They've been, um, you know, sort of disparaging the victims of, the, of abuse, falsely saying that um, that the diocese has been transparent. We asked yesterday whether, um, and we're going to be reporting on this at our 6 o'clock news tonight, whether diocesan attorney Terry Connors would be um, would be retained here. He's um, someone that a lot of people ask us, well, what about, what about him? Didn't he know about all this stuff? Mr. Connors says that, um, you know, to de- to defend himself here, that he was simply doing his job as a lawyer and, and putting this information, you know, letting the diocese know about it, whereas others would say there's a higher moral burden here, you know, legal ethics aside, to, to come forward uh, to the police about some of these things. Um, so there's a lot of people still in those positions, and it's it will be interesting to see who retains power within the diocese, because ultimately Bishop Scharfenberger may say all the right things now, He's only going to be here for a few months. So what happens after that? What, who becomes a bishop? And more importantly, who does he surround himself it, with? It's it, important for people to uh, maybe hear from you uh, yourself say this. You didn't have a goal of going in and saying, we are going to remove Bishop Malone. You, you are reporting on what has happened, what is happening in the church you have no control over what happens uh, as far as personnel moves go within the church, but you're not going after the saying, oh, we are going to get Malone out of here and then our job is done. You're just reporting what you see and what comes to you. Yeah, I don't think I have that kind of power, uh, yeah. quite frankly. I I honestly thought at the beginning of this that Bishop Malone was totally innocent because he'd only been here for five years. I said to myself, well, there's no way that an abuse survivor in the very beginning said to me, well, Bishop Malone's got to go. And I kind of laughed and I was like, well, yeah, right, that'll never happen because, you know, he's not implicated here. But the documents spoke for themselves. The recordings spoke for themselves. I do think, though, there was a point in the in the story here uh, where the public essentially was like, okay, we've reached like the point of no return, that we can't go, he can't come back from this, uh, that anything that he sort of does from this point on will be tainted and we need a clean sweep. I started to feel that public sentiment probably around the time early this year when the second wave of stories started coming out. You could definitely kind of feel that. And people have their own personal opinions. And, you know, Steve, I'll bring this to you, too. For those, though, pursuing the story, following the story, um, I can speak for what we do here at WBEN. Um, Charlie just spoke for himself, but uh, as far as from an attorney standpoint, and maybe when you started uh, as a reporter as well, there's no, you know, predetermined end to this story where, okay, well, this is going to end when the bishop is gone, and then that's that. No, you're exactly right. Um, The one thing that Bishop Malone has repeated and is completely true is this didn't start while he was bishop. He inherited this problem. But this doesn't end with his departure. This continues. And I think what we've seen in other dioceses, like Boston went through this and went through their lawsuits, and the Archdiocese of Boston still exists and is still thriving, right? The Buffalo Diocese needs to go through this. The Buffalo Diocese will go through this. And so Bishop Malone, again, 
he inherited this. But remember, and I worked at the Catholic Center for two years. My first job out of college was in the Catholic Center. Bishops hear from a lot of voices. They hear from the lawyers. They hear from the top contributors. They hear from the various boards that support the diocese. They hear from a lot of voices. But one man makes the decision, an ordained priest wearing a mitre. Where's the decision? The bishop. And so while he's getting information from all these other voices, he is the one who needs to make the call. And he did not come into this in a naive way. He was very involved with cardinal law in Boston. He was involved in the crisis in, in uh, Portland, Maine. He knew the playbook, and he followed the old playbook. What he didn't realize, I think, is that the times changed. And so every diocese in the United States has some level of this problem, but not every diocese in the United States is in crisis as Buffalo is. And that's because Buffalo has not had the leadership needed to manage and handle this this crisis and to um, protect the priests, but also protect the survivors, protect, protect in a truthful way and bring justice to this. So if Bishop Malone had you know, not done this tap dance that he's done for all these years and actually addressed the problem straight on in a truthful manner, we might not be sitting here today because this might be old news. Bishop Scharfenberger put the names out in the Diocese of Albany four years ago. So why didn't Bishop Malone just do that same thing when he came here? He wouldn't be here. I'm kind of thinking to that point right now uh, in this position that Edward Scharfenberger is in. He's not walking into a a great, you know, (laughs) I think it was said a a few times from guests we've had on, uh, people have described it as a five-alarm fire. He's not walking into anything, you know, short of that big fire that's going on in the Diocese of Buffalo. But he could choose to handle that fire differently and maybe that's where something changes and he is not you know uh, uh dealt with the same faith that malone ultimately he's is. not a rookie either he, he seems to be somebody with senior experience and has been through this in the diocese of albany and and has handled it in a way that clearly the papal nuncio and pope francis have taken note of and there is a reason why they chose him to be here and to handle this five alarm fire uh, steve a lot of people, I think, would just wonder, how come, whether it's uh, an investigator, a detective, or an attorney can't serve the bishop with something to force him to sit down under oath and answer a series of questions? Shouldn't it be that simple? Well, that would happen if the, if the uh, diocese does not file bankruptcy and the state Supreme Court cases continue. There will be a long period of time where a representative of the diocese with knowledge of all of these files will have to testify. And up until yesterday, that person was most likely going to be Bishop Malone. So we've actually been making um, arrangements for how a deposition would take place because none of us are interested in deposing somebody 200 times. So that was going to happen. I think the diocese will file for bankruptcy. And we are right behind Rochester, which filed about three months ago, in Rochester, the first witness in the first hearing was Bishop Matano, and he was expected to testify for about an hour, and he testified for about four hours, and he answered all of the questions. Now, if you put Bishop Scharfenberger, Scharfenberger in that spot, he won't know the answers. So they're going to have to put someone in that spot that does know all of this. And I believe that our side will say that should be Bishop Malone. 
you got the sense maybe yesterday, Charlie, that Scharfenberger would have liked to have that press conference a week or two from now when he had a, a few more uh, answers off the top of his head. Yeah, he said that he would, you know, said, look, this is my first day here. You know, I don't know what I'm getting into. I'm looking at it with open eyes. Interesting feedback from some of the survivors. Uh, one of the survivors, uh, Kevin, had said to me, um, well, I expected Dick t- for him to have a game plan because, as Steve mm-hmm. said, he's not coming into this with no idea. I mean, this, this is a playbook that's happened all over the country here with, with abuse. Um, I think that this is an abuse problem, but there's also deeper issues of governance in the Buffalo Diocese. So I think kind of the second year this scandal revealed all of these problems that are happening at Christ the King Seminary. And you have seminarians sort of resigning in protest and holding news conferences in front of the diocese. Well, that's, that's not normal. You have people being, my sources tell me, being drummed out of the seminary for sort of being dissenters of the, of the culture there. And then you have, um, you know, obviously in any corporation, you have whistleblowers being, you know, made every month here in the diocese, potentially. Um, so there's a deeper issue of how the diocese is governed. I've, told, I've been told that Bishop DiMarzio has has told people, you know, this diocese is in rough shape, and they really need the expertise to really, you know, pick up the pieces. It's not just going to be, let's put a new bishop in there and start rolling. It's going to take some major heavy lifting. We'll have uh, so much more. Steve Boyd and Charlie Speck joining me live in studio for the next couple of hours, and uh, we'll uh, open up the phone lines in the next hour to uh, 803-0930, the number to call in if uh, you have a question for either of our two guests. We have the news coming up next with Randy. It's 958. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 